We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. Natalie reminds us today in part two of her podcast that there is no cure for CHD. Band-Aids, surgeries, medication, and transplants for those who are living with CHD is the only treatment plan. At the end of our last episode, you heard her share that her son Sawyer's Epstein anomaly was very serious and they were transferring him to St. Louis for care. We continue our conversation today hearing how Natalie's desire to keep moving forward with treatment options opened the door for an incredible support system of moms in the CHD community, as well as provided Sawyer with a surgical option which created and gave him a functional heart. Thank you for listening in to this incredible journey. Before the life light, they said, look, we have to try and convert his heart rate. It's not right, but we have to try and convert him. We're going to try using adenosine, which is a medicine. And sometimes you can't use that. It's not always safe, depending on their stability. So sometimes electricity is the safest way. Adenosine, you know, she's like, I think we have to try adenosine this time, but it stops their heart. That's why it's dangerous. It stops their heart, but then it picks back up in theory. You know, and she's like, this could really hurt him. We could stop his heart and it could not come back. We don't know. But we can't put him on this plane like this. So we're going to have to do it. And that was the longest three seconds of my life. It felt like an hour watching her inject that into his IV and wait to see what happened. But it did convert him. We put him on a plane. We were not able to fly with him as you normally would apparently be able to go. But they needed an extra doctor on the plane because he was so unstable. And we said goodbye to him as if it could be the last time because um, it might be. We weren't sure if he would make it. I mean, they were very clear about that. And so we said goodbye to him as you would if if your child might be passing away uh, with the hopes that that was a fake goodbye. And then we said goodbye to our older son who we left here with friends and family because he was at that point 17 months old can't be in the ICU. I'm 17 months old. We didn't know where we were going to be staying. So we left him behind too, which is a whole different layer of guilt. And we drove to St. Louis um, waiting for an update. And we got to the halfway point and we got the update that he had landed and he was alive. So the second half of the drive was much better <laughs> um, because we knew that. So then we spent in their CICU we spent two months living there, you know, and had multiple fun cardiac arrests and other things happened there where we got our ablation. That's where Sire had his ablation. Normally, an ablation would be they would go in through a catheter, through your groin, and they go map the heart and find the pathway that doesn't belong, and they sever it, usually with heat. We had to do cryo. Um, with his, which was freezing it. It's not the most efficient way, but he was, he went into heart block when they were in there. It's a procedure they normally would not do until you're about five or six, seven, maybe years old. But it was pretty clear that Sawyer could not continue this way. And so we had a 
electrophysiologist at St. Louis who was willing to do it on an infant. And he had a team of two adult electrophysiologists, another pediatric physio electrophysiologist come work the procedure with him because it was so dangerous. It was actually had a higher mortality rate than our open heart surgery later. <laughs> um, it was pretty wild. And, and the elevator on the way up, you know, we were going to say goodbye to him for his procedure. And they had one of the doctors that was going to be on the case. And he looked at us and said, I want you to know that this is going to be very, very difficult. I have never like seen a more difficult case ahead. <laughs> and we're like, super. <laughs> so glad you told us that. That's wonderful. Um, so we were in their CIC for a couple months and then we came home again. Their plan moving forward was to let him um, kind of keep going along. He was in heart failure. He was very sick. He was on 77 doses of medication a week at that point. And the plan was to let him get sick enough to be listed for transplant. That was all that hospital could offer. Tulsa couldn't touch him. Oklahoma City wouldn't touch him. That was the plan. And the plan just didn't seem right to me. I'm like, so we're just going to wait for him to get so sick that he, I don't know, it just didn't really seem like something that I wanted to do. My husband and I were like, oh, no. So I circled back on Facebook and I found a support group for Epstein's anomaly, which is my son's heart defect. It's very rare. Um, it's like one in 200,000 people will get Epstein's anomaly and it's, you can have it mild. So a lot of people have Epstein's anomaly. It's mild. It doesn't really do much. And then there's a really, really small percentage who have um, severe acute Epstein's anomaly. Of course, we love to fall into super small percentiles. So, um, you know, so of course he had that. But we, through this Facebook page, we found out that Mayo Clinic had a surgeon named Dr. Duraney, Joseph Duraney, and he specialized in Epstein's anomaly repairs, heart repairs, which is our word for surgery. Um, so I got on there and kind of just, you know, when you join a support group for medical stuff, you say your name, you show a cute picture of your baby in the hospital. This is Sire. This is what's, you know, ahead of us. And all these parents flooded me with messages and comments, like, please send your file to the Mayo Clinic. Like this, you don't have to do this. Like you might not have to do this. This And transplants its own beast. It's a wonderful benefit, but it is, you know, you only get two organs in a lifetime and they only last 10 to 20 years, best case. You know, it's a, it's great. And you're on, you know, medicines for your entire life. Immunosuppressants, it ups your risk of cancer. I mean, there's a lot, you know, transplant is not what some people think that it's just it's like a cure. There is no cure for CHD, by the way. <laughs> There's only repairs and band-aids and transplants. Um, so anyway, so transplant was looming, you know, over us because it just, it just doesn't feel right. And it was horrible. It was a horrible prognosis to have. Um, you know, so we we're like, all right, well, I guess we could send our file to this doctor. And our cardiologist was very supportive and was like, we can absolutely send this file there. You know, this is the... Mayo Clinic, they're the front runners in Western medicine. They're not, you know, wildly, highly ranked in pediatric cardiothoracic surgery as far as like, you know, you hear of like CHOP, Children's Hospital, you know, um, and they're ranked higher. But this specific incident was important because 
that's when we learned you don't shop for hospital rankings. You shop for the surgeon that can do it the best. And that had never been told or explained to us ever. We found that out through parents. And we're like, okay, we'll send our file to Dr. Draney. He called me personally and he said, please don't list your son for transplant. I think I can do this. And he's like, I'm going to tell you that there is risk involved. He's definitely severe. So the mortality rate, you know, like their success rate is a little lower than some of the kids. I was like, okay, like I can take it. What you got? He said it's about 96, 97% success. <laughs> and I laughed. I was like, oh my gosh, like everything prior leading up to this was like, do this or he'll die. Do this or he'll die. Do this or he'll die. Or he'll die. Um, oh, by the way, doing this, the mortality rate is, you know, like, 40%. Uh, so this is the best news we've ever had. And he was like, I really think I can do this, but you've got to come now. Like he is sick. You know, he wasn't gaining weight. He was failure to thrive. He was on a feeding tube at this point. Um, after he went into cardiac arrest in St. Louis, he couldn't eat my mouth anymore. We didn't know why he had already had a stroke while on the ECMO circuit and NICU, like he had all these odds stacked against him. He couldn't sit up. He was 13 months old when he went in for open heart surgery, which was six weeks after that call. And he couldn't even sit up on his own um, very well because he was just mush from being in bed all the time. And we went to the Mayo Clinic and I had all this anxiety because, like I said, until then it was do this or he'll die. But this was going against the grain. This is going against what our team said originally they were possible. They said he didn't qualify for this, for these surgeries or these options. But Dr. Draney is an expert and he, you know, did all of his testing and imaging there. And he said, yes, like, I really feel good about this. And he gave him a beautiful repair, a beautiful repair. He closed two holes in Sawyer's heart. He freed the leaflets that were fused to his heart, tricuspid valve, moved them to their proper spot, did an atrial reduction of ventricle plication. He gave him a Glenn shunt, which kind of just for lack of a better words, um, changes the plumbing. It uses gravity to pull blood from your brain and shunts it down so Sire's body does not have to work as hard to circulate his blood. And they remodeled the entire right side of his heart. I mean, they redid everything. And he woke up pink, just perfectly pink. No cyanosis, no blue fingers, Not he was cold all the time. Um, and he was also kind of a serious baby. He never, you know, he laughed and smiled some, but he was kind of a more serious baby. And after surgery, he just laughed and laughed all the time. He felt so much better. He was pink. He gained weight. I mean, this little kid got so fat <laughs> so quick. Um, and it just changed, it changed everything. It changed our lives. And I look back and I'm like, God, that information came from parents. It came from other parents who took the time to see my story, our story, and say, no, there's something better out there. And I'm still a member of that group today. Every time there's a new family and they say, my hospital says they won't qualify for this, please. Like, if you do nothing else, at least reach out. It's free. Getting a second opinion is free. And when you have a very rare heart defect, and this would go for any illness, if you have a rare anything, the run-of-the-mill hospital, even if they're amazing, even if they're so highly ranked and they're respected, it doesn't matter if they don't have someone there specializing in it. The person at St. Louis could not execute those surgeries. I believe that. That was true. 
they did not offer the information that someone else in the country could, which was frustrating um, because they knew him. We found that out later. They knew him. They knew our surgeon and nobody told us until after the fact. But we found that information from parents. And so a couple takeaways from this is if you're in this situation and you have a feeling or this hospital is saying this door is closed, you do not have to roll over and take that information. It doesn't mean they're lying. It means that they cannot do it. That does not mean someone else cannot. And that saved our life. That saved Sawyer's life. You cannot, you have to stop shop like for something like this, something rare. You have to shop for the surgeon. You don't shop for the hospital rankings. That meant nothing in this scenario. And not saying it's not important. There's so much more to it. And find those support groups. That support group quite literally saved his life. And I have successfully talked to mothers through getting the same outcome for their, they were told transplant. They were told there's nothing to do. And we got them, you know, we helped them get second opinions and we helped them fight with their insurance. We helped them win appeals to get to the proper people. And now their children are living better lives and they're not transplanted. And, you know, so now our job for advocation is helping people realize that where you go matters. And one door closing certainly does not mean it's closed for good. And I know that there are situations where that's not the case and that truly they can't do much in the children past. Like that is our world. That happens all the time. But this is, a, you know, it happens time and time again in the support group. These parents coming forward and they're like, look, like they said it wasn't possible and they tried this and they botched it and then they go to Mayo Clinic or a different hospital, you know, there's, and, um, but then they get to them and it's like, oh, the whole world opens up. That parent to parent information, it, it, there's, there's no replacing it. And it truly is for, for people who don't have that support or that ability to connect with some other families, really finding that is so key. And so well, and I remember in the beginning, I didn't, someone was like, do you know any other moms going through this? And at the time, it just sounded like exhausting, like having to kind of talk about it. But when we were in St. Louis, a nurse from Tulsa was like, look, you have got to talk to this girl. She's up there with her son. Please connect with her. And we did. And we are to this day so close. And I would never have made it without her and the other moms that I met along the way because I could explain it without someone having to Google it or ask questions. I could explain it without having to be like, oh, they're probably sick of hearing about this again because I'm the most depressing person on the planet because I'm traumatized and I can't think about anything else, you know, or my problems are so big. You know, they were so big at that point. It was really hard for me to relate um, to small things. You know, I'd, I'd get irrationally agitated at people like, oh, my kid is traumatized from its flu you know, their flu shot. And I would just, uh, you know, and that's not fair, but it's a process within you when you're going through something traumatic. And those were the people where it was safe to be like, oh, okay. You know, and, um, there are worse, you know, things like I'm sure me complaining about seeing my child electrocuted, piss someone off whose child died. Cause they're probably like, well, your child's here. 
you know, it's all based on your experience and, you know, that tribe, indescribable, it's important. And if it seems like too much at first, take a breath and then find it, find your tribe, find them, find the support group, find your local group. It will be a life changer for you, for your spouse. Like it makes a big difference. Such great promotion there for uh, that peer support among the families. And it sounds like your hospital even advocated for that, for that to take oh, place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we had a, a time where we were both inpatient at the same time with our boys and they were next to each other. We got fussed at for hanging out in each other's rooms because <laughs> you're not supposed to do that. Um, you know, but you just draw the curtain and hide back there. But yeah, man, oh, those families. And we lost so many of the kids along the way, but whew, those ladies, I tell you, those friends that you've, that you've made and maybe their outcomes haven't been like yours talked about survivor guilt a little bit oh man it is the realest of real uh oof, it's even what's funny is is you know specifically there were there was sire Kaysen, and colton and we have lots of other heart friends but these three they were born around the same time they were always acting up at the same time we'd be in the hospital at the same time we would message each other from different states sometimes like in different hospital rooms but we really became a tribe and the hospital started calling them the, uh, the three musketeers and, <laughs> um, Sawyer was supposed to have a transplant as you knew. And then Kaysen, he had HLHS. So he was supposed to have, you know, three to four open heart surgeries. It's a really gnarly CHG, but he at that time was not supposed to have a transplant. Colton had already had a transplant, you know, and he was the sickest by far. And we, we lost Colton a few years ago and it was devastating and Kaysen got so sick and he spent you know like almost a year in the hospital and he was transplanted and he's still with us he's amazing um and Sire soared into health it was what I've always prayed for what we wanted and but man it felt like we were leaving them in the dust like it just and even though they would never, they would never want Sire to be sick or go through the things that they had experienced. Um, it, it, something to be said for survivor's guilt because Colton did not survive, but I don't know what the term for the for guilt is when your son's not as sick as someone else's, but, um, that's a thing too, because we could move on a little bit and they couldn't. And man, I just, I don't understand why some people, and some children are afforded these beautiful miracles and others aren't. I'll never be able to reconcile it because they all deserve it. They all deserve to live. They don't deserve to go through all this pain to be stuck with these needles all the time, to have all these surgeries, to live in a bed. Parents don't deserve to, to live that, to see that, to have to keep those images in their minds for their whole life you know sire doesn't remember his trauma thank god but i'll never forget it like my husband and i we're changed forever we're we have ptsd like not that's not a joke like that's a thing and we talk about that a lot too that going through something traumatic with your child is absolutely ptsd inducing and it's not talked about enough, in my opinion, you know. So if you find yourself feeling those feelings, that's legitimate. Get a therapist. Get on antidepressants if you need them. There is nothing wrong with any of those things. Like, 
when you're a medical parent, your self-care is low. You put your child first. You put putting food on the table and paying those large medical bills first. Um, but us as parents, you know, it needs to be pressed more to take care of ourselves. So Sawyer had that surgery. How long did that surgery take? That it was an eight hour surgery, um, which is funny because his heart cath where they did the ablation was like a seven hour surgery. Mm-hmm. And um, all they did was go like sever a little pathway. But that, you know, was just a that was just a rough surgery in general. But his open heart surgery was eight hours, which is about as projected. Um to remodel, you know, the whole right side of his heart. I'm still so impressed that a person can do that on a heart the size of a walnut. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like that's wild to me. And they finish up while the heart starts to beat again. I mean, crazy stuff, guys. Um, but yeah, so that the surgery took about eight hours and he has just thrived. I just can't even explain how much he's thrived. Like, and he is so sweet. He went, he had like just a violent baby. I call it violent, which people don't assume medical stuff, but it is violent. They're hurting. They're in pain all the time. Like, and he's the sweetest, the kindest, quietest little kid. And, you know, he has developmental delays. He's looped into this bed program at school because he had a stroke. He had low oxygen situations for over a year. He had, you know, different things. It's very common for children with critical CHDs to have developmental delays that's almost like go hand in hand almost every time and um so it's not over and you know we have he had epilepsy you know his stroke sight through seizures for a while uh he did grow out of that and then you know he had a feeding tube so we had to do feeding therapy you know occupational therapy physical therapy speech therapy every therapy under the sun under the sun to get him to where he is today. It was a full-time job. It was so much work, but it was worth it. And he's doing so great now. And it's never over. He's monitored all the time. He still has wonky little arrhythmias every now and then, you know, those ablated pathways sometimes grow back. So he might have to have another one of those. So far, his valve repair has grown beautifully with him, but you know, the door's never shut. So we always wonder if there'll be more, but we couldn't be more thrilled with what we were given. And even if someday he had to have a transplant, putting as much time in between yourself with that, you know, that's a gift in itself. And he's here with us. And we didn't know if that was going to be possible. So many times we thought that wasn't going to be possible. I can't tell you how many times we had to call our, actually I can't at six, (laughs) how many times we had to call our family and be like, they said he might not make it. They said he might not make it, you know? And, um, I'm just so proud of him. Gosh, like, and I'm proud of us for making it um, as a family, as a married couple, all of those things. I mean, obviously the, the pressure and the stress that it puts on a marriage in a relationship is, is just almost unmentionable because it is, there's so much there. Um, and, and to be told that your child, you know, may not survive past age five and here he is, he's eight. Yes, he's about to turn nine. About to turn nine. The the time has been a miracle in itself. Tell me now about some of the things he does. Um, you you kind of described him a little bit earlier, but I I kind of want you just to tell us about Sawyer. What are his likes, his dislikes? Does he enjoy <laughs> sports? Are there things that he gets to do now uh, because he is 
thriving in a in a sense of his heart is is looking really good. Tell us a little bit about that. So, Sire, you know, he's a unique guy. You know, my older son, he has like 25 friends. He's Mr. Social. Um, and Sire is very kind to everybody. And most people are kind to him. He gets a little picked on sometimes because he's different and quiet. But he's more of like, he has two quality friends. You know, he really doesn't require like that whole fuss. And he's likes to play with Pokemon and um, Mario toys. He's, you know, just really like kind of just a quiet nerd in the best way, you know. And he wears glasses. He's got his whole Sheldon vibe going on. Um, and he, we did sports, you know, he did soccer for a little bit, but he's just, he's not fast. He's not very agile at all. And he gets tired easily. It's just fine, you know, and we made a decision to pull him out of soccer. Just the field was going to get bigger, more running positions. And he's just not, you know, it's just not him. I'm sure some of that is from circumstance. Sometimes I wonder if some of it's just the way it is. You know, you never know what they, what he would have been like as a, quote unquote normal child. But um so no, he doesn't really care about sports a whole lot or things like that, but he loves to play with his two good best friends and he loves to play with toys and jump on the trampoline. Likes that. Um he's in karate currently, you know, that's his thing right now. So yeah, we're just taking it a day at a time and getting him through school and reading better and you know, all those things. So really, as far as limitations, and um, because of the heart surgeries and stuff like that, are, are there a lot of restrictions for him? He's self-regulated. If he if he doesn't, you know, if he gets winded, he he will stop, and he knows that he needs to stop. One time, he challenged a kid that was picking on him to a race, and he didn't stop, and he like collapsed, uh, and he was so upset, and he was like, he didn't even help me up, like he was so distraught, and it was like, oh, you know, that moment. Like, I've just always. You know, one of those heart mom moments that you dread, like he collapsed in the playground because he didn't, but he was fine. I think he was emotionally, more emotionally damaged than he was physically. And, um, but you know, he just kind of manages his own self and, you know, he'll tell us if, like he's had arrhythmias before and he said, mom, my chest feels full. And then he, you know, passed out and I was like, oh, like, you know, and so he was able to kind of communicate those things now and, now we just kind of deal with like him being aware of his heart defect and knowing that if he needs to go for help while not scaring him, you know, you got to like let them know what the reality is, but you don't want them to dwell on it. You don't want that to define them. You know, it, when you're in the babyhood of it, it really does define everything. And then you get a little farther removed. It's like, okay, he's sire. You know, we call him super sire when he was, you know, back then. Um, Course. And he's still he super to me, but you know, he was gonna go to heart camp again this summer and he got invited to go to church camp with his best friend and he picked the church camp with his best friend and I think I had a harder time with it. I wanted him to go to heart camp again. I loved it. I love everything about it, but it's his journey and I take my leave from him now and oh, I'm just so proud of him. I haven't even met him and I'm sitting here just going, I'm so proud of that boy. It's just so oh. you as you should be. I mean he is just I'm like, oh, I got it. I got to meet Super Slayers. <laughs> and I just love, like, it, I worried that he, because of just the beginning was so, like, I worried he wouldn't be bonded. I worried that he would, 
God, be just so angry. I don't know what I thought, but he's just so gentle. You'd never know. And I don't know what I thought would happen or, but um, it was just a pleasant surprise that kids can still be happy. They, despite those things, they can still find everything that makes them them. Yeah. Yeah. You have a different start than everybody else. (laughs) Okay, so you had Sawyer. You went through all of those traumatic experiences with this, with the diagnosis, the surgery, and yet y'all still had another baby. We did, man, and that was a, woo, that was a conversation. Um, you know, we had to sit down and be like, if this happens again, like, can we do it? And we waited. I was a hard no, a hard no, until Sawyer was three and he got his feeding tube taken out. And I, one night, my husband was the one that wanted three really bad. And I was like, you know, like, we really were robbed of a babyhood. Sire's babyhood and a little bit of Nolan's because you're still a baby when you're 13 months old. And everything went to hell in a handbasket, you know. And we just kind of wanted something normal, which sounds weird and somewhat selfish in a way. But um, and turns out. So, uh, our third did have a heart defect, but it was just a whole little closing us down, no big deal. And he has acute food allergies. So, um, normal is not what we got, you know, and our older son, you know, he still has his hydronephrosis. He has Tourette's. Um, I don't know what, what, you know, what's going on with all that, but we just take it in stride and there's a lot of love, a lot of, a lot of bills, medical bills, but a lot of love remember boredom what was that like you know just I just didn't think parenthood would be this way but that's okay and you know when people say all they want is a healthy baby some people just don't get that and that's okay too yeah why don't you talk about that why don't you talk about that statement when you hear it I don't know just share a little bit about those thoughts I'm gonna preface this with no parent should ever feel ashamed for wanting a healthy child because I would be lying if I said I didn't want a healthy child. Everybody should want a healthy child for the sake of their child. Um, but that's just not the reality in so many cases. And I don't like to say, oh, you should never say this, you should never say that, even though I stick by my cliche stuff from before. Um, but mainly, it used to make me angry, but as I grow and I you know now I just think but what if they're not and I just wish and hope that people thought like take a pause to maybe think about if they're going to say that or not it's totally fine if you're going to say that but there are people out there that that does kind of hurt their feelings and I think that I'm not saying people should wait and wonder for doom and gloom but um what if they're not? What are you going to do? You know? And you're going to love them just the same. You just have to mourn what you thought was coming. And you go down a different road. And that's a, you know, and it's a beautiful road. It might be horrible in many ways, but it's beautiful because you're a baby. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family 
or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405-271-5072.